in chapter 1. I'll read verse 1 down through verse 15. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. It is given to you in love. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The grass withers and the flowers fade. God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated, please. John the Apostle wrote his gospel not so much to tell us what Jesus did, but to explain to us what Jesus meant. The gospel of John has been called a pool in which a child can play and an elephant can swim. Matthew, Mark, and Luke present Jesus to a generation in the process of being evangelized. But the Apostle John writes his gospel to a generation of maturing and questioning disciples of the Lord Jesus. And it gives them, among other things, the most massive theological concepts that we find in the New Testament. This is one of the reasons why, for example, Artists throughout medieval history have portrayed the Gospel of John as an eagle. For the eagle is the only bird, it was believed, that could fly directly into the sun. And just in the same way, John gives us these amazing concepts, high and lifted up, about the beauty and radiant holiness of our Savior. Matthew connects Jesus with David and Abraham. Mark connects Jesus with John the Baptist. Luke records the prophecies of Jesus' birth. But John presents to us Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God. And today we come to the concept over which more Christians in history have lost their lives and more philosophers have lost their minds. The idea that Jesus Christ is divine. We're introduced to it in the phrase, the Word was God. Now, entire seminary classes, as you seminarians know, have been dedicated to the prologue of John, these first 18 verses. Some believe that it was an ancient hymn. Some, it was an early confession. That the Word was God meant that Jesus, who is the Word, we know that from verse 18, is divine. He is not merely like God, 
as our Jehovah Witnesses, uh, friends who maybe Jehovah's Witnesses believe. Jesus is divine. And it may not seem like much, but the doctrine that Jesus is God has reshaped the planet. And each continent has led the way in its proclamation. So this morning, we're going to look at four things. Why did John the Apostle emphasize Jesus' deity? Why did John the Baptist emphasize Jesus' deity? What does that teach us about ourselves? And how do we apply it? So first, why did John the Apostle emphasize Jesus' deity? John the Apostle emphasized Jesus' deity because Jesus is divine. And as such, Jesus is different than all other messianic figures. When I was a boy, I used to think that everyone on the streets of first century Israel should have known about Jesus. I mean, wasn't, wasn't he the only beard-groomed guy with perfect skin and a white robe that looked like it just came from the dry cleaners walking down the street? How could you have missed him? But the truth is, if I had lived in first century Israel, I probably would not have recognized him at all. And you wouldn't have noticed him either. Many thought Jesus bar Joseph, Jesus the carpenter, Jesus the, the Nazarene, was just another Johnny-come-lately of many messianic figures. In between Malachi and Matthew, many men rose up, and they claimed to be the Messiah. You can read about three of them, for example, in the book of Acts. In Acts 5.37, we read of Judah the Galilean who led people astray and he created the party of the Zealots. You had the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. This fiercely religious and political group of the first century. We know from history that, that Judah the Galilean even had a John the Baptist forefigure named Sadduk who would walk around and present himself to the people as Elijah, which we know from, from Malachi 4, 5, and 6, there would be one like Elijah who would precede the Messiah. And Zadok would introduce Judah the Galilean as the anointed one. Acts five thirty six, we see another Messiah, Theudas, who the, the Jewish historian Josephus said led the masses in A.D. 45 to take all their possessions and follow him to the Jordan River, where, like Moses, he would part the Jordan River. Only it didn't part. And Josephus tells us that most of his followers died by drowning. In Acts 21:38, the Roman commander hears Paul's accent and says to him, well, you couldn't be the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led thousands of men into the wilderness. What's he talking about? He's talking about an early messianic figure, the Egyptian, who again Josephus wrote that this Egyptian claimed to be the Messiah and he led his followers to the Mount of Olives where they gathered their forces together to siege Jerusalem. 
Only Governor Felix caught wind of it, and he sent his elite forces to the Mount of Olives, and we don't ever hear anything else about the Egyptian and his people. The pattern of false messiahs in the first century was all too familiar. And into this trend in time, John writes to say that Jesus was no Judah the Galilean. Jesus was no Theodos. Jesus was no Egyptian. Jesus preceded David. He preceded Moses. He even preceded Abraham. He even preceded creation itself. John saw Jesus die on the cross. John saw Jesus resurrected. John saw Jesus ascend into heaven. And John saw Jesus high and lifted up, as we heard Lydia read earlier this morning in Revelation 19, when he was on the island of Patmos. And here he is back in Ephesus toward the end of his life. And John is thinking about this man in a robe soaked with blood, in a war against sin and death, so that those who are saved by faith in his blood are able to wear garments of white, fully forgiven, with a righteousness that was not theirs to earn, given to them by grace. Jesus was no Johnny-come-lately first-century prophet. Jesus was divine. And Jesus is different than all the anointed things that we pursue for our own self-actualization. He wasn't just a first century prophet then. He's also not a first century or a 21st century prophet today. Lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. These are the things that we set up as our messiahs. We could take any of them, but let's just take the security that we find in financial success. Money for us is a gift to steward for God's glory. But if money becomes your identity, your master rather than your servant, you will always be a slave to debt's demands. Money, for example, is to be shared like uh, the beach waters are to be shared. We are to splash and play and set up our tents and enjoy the rays of the sun at the beach. We're to enjoy the water. You share it with others. But you don't drink it in or you will grow dehydrated and you will suffer an agonizing death. If you say, I'm getting life from the salt water, I'm quenching my thirst, you're fooling yourself. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, quit comparing yourselves to others and let money serve your needs rather than you serve money. You take life from the salt water. And you will find yourself to be dehydrated. Money gives you the appearance of success in a place like Tulsa, Oklahoma. But when it gets in your veins, it saps all of the water from you. Isn't it ironic? There are so many other ways to serve Messiah-like figures. Money and financial success is just one of them. Every object we pursue for our own self-actualization, which is the term we throw around today for self-salvation, to have your best life now, is created except for one, Jesus Christ. And cancer is not cured with Band-Aids. 
And so our hearts, dead in our trespasses and sins, must not be merely bandaged up, but they must be made new. You do not need crutches. You need a new heart. Props to Adam Steadley, who does need crutches. You need a new heart. Because only the gospel can get to the very bottom of our sin problem. Just as Jesus was different than every messianic figure in the first century, is he any different today? No. He's unique. He wasn't created. He is fully divine, and he died to pay your infinite debt. In the beginning was the Word. And John leaks Jesus to the very beginning of time. And if John simply wanted to say Jesus was, um, you know, the, the, the mere true human Messiah prophesied by the Old Testament, he could have done it in so a much easier way. But he says that Jesus is the eternal foundation for truth itself, that he's part of the divine Godhead who created the world, and that Jesus is infinite in perfection, truly divine himself. I mean, John introduces us to the mind-stretching concept of the Holy Trinity, as we looked at last week. To those who believe the ancient stories of creation involving many gods, John, like a good apologist, says, Jesus was with the Father. He is the one you're looking for. And to the Jewish monotheists, John, like a good apologist, says, Jesus was the one who was in the beginning. God. He is the one you're looking for. And to us, he says, only Jesus gets to the bottom of our sin problem, the problem that you and I have. And he's unique. Brothers and sisters, will you receive this good news? Do you know how broken we are? Do you know how deep our sin problem goes? John emphasized Jesus' deity because Jesus was different than every messianic figure then and now. But not only that, but John also emphasizes Jesus' deity because faith, not works, saves. John emphasizes Jesus' deity because Jesus is a savior for everyone who would believe by placing their faith in him. This is what he means. Look at your Bibles in verse 11 down through 13. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all not just the Jews, to all who would receive him, not by works, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, salvation by family ties, nor of the will of the flesh, salvation by strength, nor of the will of man, salvation by effort, but by God. If John were a lyrical poet, he might say, I want the world to know that Jesus didn't come with sword or spear, but with his life to make it clear to all that life is not gained by chance or money or pain, but by his body and blood. Slain to bring you to the Father's face, to know his love, 
and his embrace as a precious child, not a slave, as if we could possibly pave a pathway back to the garden and avoid the devil's bargain that only Jesus could defeat and set our feet upon the rock to make secure the broken man who admits, I know I can't, but I know who can. And cries, deliver us, God, from malcontent and raise us up with Jesus who spent his life for mine, his blood for my sins in exchange for a record I could not earn. But with gratitude now discern is better than all wealth or work could provide if a thousand lifetimes alone I searched the darkness to atone for just one sin. Thank you, eternal word, that through you, the life behind the light, we may to God enter in. There's so many ways John could have said it. But John wrote his gospel to prove the deity of Jesus against the Gnostics who denied it. And if you deny Jesus' deity, you are left with bad news. Because there's no way to pay for the infinite debt that you and I own. John emphasized Jesus' deity because Jesus' uniqueness. And because you and I can know him by faith alone, not by works. Do you receive it? Do you believe it? Second, why does John the Baptist emphasize Jesus' deity? Verse 6 introduces us to a new character in the book. His name was John, not to be confused with the Apostle John, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist emphasizes Jesus' deity because he, John the Baptist, was not the Messiah. We know that 25 years after John the Baptist's death, people still followed John the Baptist and his teaching as though he was the Messiah. We read about this in Acts chapter 18, verse 25, and chapter 19, verse 3. John the Baptist was a blue-blooded Jew. He was the son of a priest named Zechariah, and he was the son of Elizabeth, a mother born in the priestly line. There was no bluer blood you could possibly have than John the Baptist's. And he was born in the hill country of Judea, and he spent his early years in the wilderness. And in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, which we know is AD 27, John emerged out of the wilderness to announce the imminent arrival of the Messiah. And John the Baptist tells us in verse 6 that John the Apostle tells us that John the Baptist, so many Johns. John the Baptist says, I am not the Messiah. I am one who is to bear witness for the word. Jesus, the light, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he says in verse 29 of chapter 1. I am not the Christ, but I have come to help you prepare for repentance of heart because he who is the Messiah is coming. John the Baptist followed the tradition of Elijah, which we know his name in Hebrew means Yahweh is God. And it's as though the entire ministry of John the Baptist was to say, Jesus is God. 
We'll talk about this more in the coming weeks as we get further into chapter 1. But John the Baptist emphasized Jesus' deity because he was not the Messiah. But he came to bear witness about the Messiah. The word witness in Greek is the word uh, martyrian. Or we might say that John the Baptist was the first Marturian candidate, not to be confused with Manchurian candidate, which is like a political puppet. Different words. He came to be the witness, the first candidate to witness the coming Messiah. And the second reason John the Baptist emphasized Jesus' deity is because Israel believed God would have racial racial considerations for them. And John emphasized, verse 7, repentance and faith. He came to bear witness about the light that Jews might believe, that all might believe through him. And when Jesus walks on the scene, he announces that. Here comes the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. All right, so all of this emphasizing of Jesus' deity, what does it teach us about ourselves? It's easy to see that we are not perfect, isn't it? But that doesn't believe that you don't secretly believe you're divine. The hardest hearts are in the chests of those who have the most to lose by admitting that they need help. About 10 years ago, I remember at the campus where I served, sitting at the place in the center of campus where you could see the most students and the most traffic. And there was this beautiful sunset over the campus of Princeton. And I looked over and just see these students pouring out of these magnificent Gothic buildings. And they would have their, they would have their, their books in their hands and their backpacks. And they would be hunched over, counting the cracks in the sidewalk. And it dawned on me that there were three people on that campus. There were the Blue Bloods. The sons of senators, the daughters of, uh, of well-connected people. And, and they believed that, that they belonged there. They, they didn't need to earn it. They deserved it. And then there was another group of people. There were the strivers who earned entrance into that school. And they lived every day those four or five years of their life proving to themselves that they deserved to be there anxious, trying to please mom and dad, trying to please the professors. And then there's a third kind of student. We call them children of grace in our ministry. They were the kind of people that were on campus and they thought they were there by mistake. What? I get to go to the school and study with these people? And I remember seeing a girl who was walking out of her class and she stopped and she saw the sunrise and she saw the way the warmth of the light bounced off the chapel and she grabbed a friend and she goes, look at that. And for just a few fleeting moments, they worshiped the creator and then they went on to economics. The same three people exist at Trinity. There are some of us who say, I grew up in the church. My parents were Christians. And I'm here because I deserve it. I'm part of the family. That's what Israel believed. 
And the truth of the matter is, none of us deserve it. And the other, there are others of us who are here who are like, I'm here because, man, I can tell you all 66 books and who the authors were. I can say them backwards, and I can tell you all about the confession, and I know all these. Uh, spare us, please. Let's just love each other well, okay? And would you recognize that you are not saved by your good works or your Bible knowledge. You're saved by grace. And fueled by that, yes, we want to learn good theology, but we want it to warm our heart and not just fossilize our minds. And then there are people here who are children of grace who are like, I can't believe I'm here. Like, I have nothing in common with anybody here, but I feel like we're family because we have the same father. This is amazing. And that's where we're going as a church. And that's the kind of church we need to be because who wants another church that does church because church has always been done? Ugh. But we have a father and we come back to him week after week and he just sheds abroad in our hearts that he loves us so much and he sings over us. And he's with you when you're struggling through the things that you're struggling with as a family. At the end of the, um, my time, before I came to Oklahoma, I remember having a conversation with a professor. His name was Eric Gregory. And Eric said to me, you know the funny thing about you going to Oklahoma? And some of my best students were from Oklahoma. Which was funny because they didn't grow up in the Northeast. But I can think of three or four students that wrote like these amazing theses at the end of their four years, because they just had this incredible sense of levity and joy about their life. They were amazing. They learned a ton, and they wrote because they really were passionate about the subject for which they wrote. They didn't seem to try to be impressing everybody. And he was describing children of grace. And the irony is, even in the hallowed halls of our great institutions, the spiritual dynamic of our hearts is still at work. There are those who think they deserve it, those who think they earned it, and then there are people who just out of gratitude actually live more amazing, blazing, wonderful, life-giving lives before the world because they know how much they're loved and they're in. To which of these three people do you most immediately relate? We want to change our answer, and we want to say that we're children of grace. Are you? Do you find it easier to say this year than last year that I was wrong? Are you motivated by shame or guilt or grace to obey God's word? Let's stay here for a minute. Do you ask for advice from others? Or would you say that that's not something you do easily? Do you work hard to save face before others? Do you let people in to know you? Have people seen your house when it's a total mess and you were still glad that they were over? Are you angry when God doesn't respond to your prayers? Maybe your prayers aren't tantrums at all. Maybe prayers at all. Maybe they're tantrums. 
and maybe you're a legacy, a spiritual blue blood who thinks they deserve it. Or are you an anxious person? You can't let things go. Do you delight to pray to your Father in heaven who delights to hear your prayers, you know? Are you, eager, are you eager to teach your children the doctrines of our holy religion? Are you afraid of failure? Are you motivated by guilt? Do you struggle with your past sin being too great for God to forgive you? Maybe, just maybe, you're a striver. John invites you to believe in his name and become a child of God, and it can happen now. For some of you, it might just have happened. There's something to admit that you're broken. There's something to believe that you can be restored to your Father in heaven, and there's something to do. Turn from your sin and repent. So how do we apply this? If we are free to admit how broken we are, that we have a broken relationship with an eternally holy God. The fact that Jesus is fully human means that he can be our representative for us before the Father as a human ourselves. But the fact that he is divine means that he can pay the infinite debt that we owe to an infinitely holy God and reconcile us. That means that there is no depth of sin too deep for a divine Savior that cannot take it upon himself on the cross. As John Owen once said, the old Puritan, the riches of God's grace always extends beyond the bounds of our sin. We're able to admit that we're broken. Secondly, we're able to discern the gospel from a fabrication. When the FBI teaches men how to uh, investigate counterfeit money throughout the world, they do so by studying the real things. And so also... John invites us to study the real thing. Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, 3rd century Arianism, Docetism, Nestorianism, Eutychianism, Manichaeism, all the other isms, there's a lot of them. All the mainstream religions that want to pass off as Christianity. Will you know the gospel and will your children know it when you hear it? Jesus' divinity presents us with two realities. One, that you're not Jesus. And two, unless he does the work for us, we are not going to be reconciled to God. Now, I'm just going to mention two more, and then we'll close. Uh, We are not able to worship God as God created us to worship if Jesus isn't fully divine, because we would be idolaters right now worshiping a creation rather than a creator. The fact that Jesus is, is, Jesus is deity gives us the right scope of our own worship to him. And if worship shapes us into its image, it contours us by the Spirit, then we must continue to make much of Jesus every Sunday, week in and week out. And fourth, it authenticates the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. If Jesus is truly Lord, and some of you are learning about this in 9 a.m. discipleship with Pastor Scott, then Jesus' deity shows us that Jesus fulfilled the messianic prophecies of all of the Old Testament. 
an act which not only authenticates the inspiration of the Old Testament, but it gives us confidence with our Bibles today from which we can accurately know the Christian faith. The Apostle John opens the gospel with one of the most amazing statements about Jesus in the New Testament, rivaled only perhaps with Colossians chapter 1 or Hebrews chapter 1. And in a world of sneers and spin and memes and tweets, if I were to translate this from the Greek, and blog posts and cable news, Jesus Christ is the ultimate source of truth. I might say completely reliable amidst the changing trends. Jesus is stronger than bedrock. He is able to handle all your questions and all your baggage. He isn't going anywhere and he has always been. He is God. He was there in the beginning, right by the Father's side, designing the world out of nothing for the glory of the triune God who rules over all things eternally. And he's here now by your side. And our world's darkness has been unable even to cast a flicker of a shadow upon his radiant holiness and goodness. That might be the first five verses of the book of John retold. Augustine said that Jesus the divine so loved us that for our sake he was made man in time, although through him all times were made. He was made man who made man. He was created of a mother whom he created. He was carried by hands that he formed. He cried in the manger in wordless infancy. He, the word of God, without whom all human eloquence is mute. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that out of the, your infinite mercy and faithfulness, you sent your son, fully God, to take on flesh and live a life for us that we are unable to live perfect, fulfilling your righteous demands. And would you help us to recognize that though it's fairly easy for us to admit we're broken, some of us still struggle to believe that we're not divine. And would you call us to faith and to repentance? And would you help us to see that the gospel is the best news in all the world, that we are more broken and sinful than we could ever dare dream or think or admit, but we are also more loved and accepted than we could ever dare to imagine. Thank you, Father, that you contour us by your word. Continue to show us Jesus and make us his. In your name we pray, amen.